Our reading of scripture for the sermon comes from Genesis chapter 32. So please join me in flipping to the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 32. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When a man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said to him, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose up on him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat of the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me in prayer. Almighty and living God, help us so to hear your holy word this morning, this afternoon, that we may truly understand and that in our understanding we might believe. And Lord, that by believing we may follow you in all faithfulness and in all obedience, seeking to honor and glory, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. This morning we're going to explore the greatest wrestling match that has ever happened in the history of mankind. Growing up as a uh, child of the 80s, I can attest that there was absolutely nothing more manly than watching Jake the Snake duke it out with Hulk Hogan on Friday night primetime TV. Right? We would, my cousins and I would then spend all of Saturday morning uh, uh, recreating every move in that fight that we had watched the night before in our backyard trampling, right? Unfortunately, there was no top rope to jump off of, but we did take advantage of the trampoline's position right next to the back fence, and we would get up on the fence, and, and there was just something magical about leaping off that fence onto our cousins on the trampoline that just it helped the hair on your chest grow a little bit longer, Right? Our own wrestling matches would always, every single time, inevitably end uh, by one of our littles, one of our little siblings, uh, either getting kicked in the face or thrown off the trampoline, and they would run inside and tell mom. But mom or Aunt Polly would come out, and they, they knew not to yell at us. And instead of yelling at us, they would come out with snacks and say, boys, let's eat. And so that would peacefully end the reenactment of, of what we had watched the professionals do the night before. A few years ago, I ran across an article in a really old Time magazine that was reporting of a nationwide poll that had been taken about the greatest wrestler of all time. People were debating this. Who, who was this? Right? And the author noted that not one single vote went to the most famous athlete in history, the great wrestler Jacob. 
There was no context in this article given to this great wrestler, Jacob, right? So after the article was published, um, a letter was written to the editor asking about who this great wrestler, Jacob, was, right? The writer of that letter had, had never heard of this guy before, and apparently he hasn't read his Bible much either. Whereas we read them this morning, the great wrestler Jacob took, upon, uh, took on the creator of the universe and came out alive on the other side. He was spared by God to carry on the work that was planned for him and for his offspring. Now, I might, I might argue that the Time magazine writer uh, hadn't spent much time thumbing through his Bible either, uh, because I would argue that the great wrestler Jacob wasn't a very good wrestler at all. Right? And we should make that point very clear at the beginning. Right? The, the great commentator Matthew Henry proposed that Jacob was alone that night because he wanted to be alone. He was not looking for a fight, and once he was in the fight, right, we quickly find that he wasn't jumping off the top rope, and he didn't have the guy in a headlock giving him a knucklehead sandwich. Right? Verse 26 tells us that he was holding on for dear life. Right? This is hardly the posture of a great wrestler the greatest wrestler of all time. And for anyone who's spent any time at all watching the ridiculousness that is WWE, you should know that the greatest wrestler of all time was Stone Cold Steve Austin, native, native Texan. Um, but I, I, I digress. All right. Let's, let's turn our eyes back on the Word of God this morning. The story of Jacob wrestling with God is so much more than an epic grappling match. Right as we dive into our passage this morning, I'd like to point out a few prudent peas, right? When preparing this sermon, I got really into the alliteration game. It's funny that you mentioned alliteration this morning. I think sometimes uh, preachers and, or exhorters uh, often find themselves uh, in this little zone when preparing sermon points, right? And I, and I tend to go a little bit overboard sometimes, but my lovely wife humored me last night, and she said uh, she appreciated this little tongue twister that I had written um, to get me in the mood for this summer. So I'm going to share it with you this morning, um, but I'm certain that the note-takers will not be able to get all of this down easily. Um, so I will simplify my points for you afterwards. You ready for this? Jacob's prudent plans and perseverance, his pleading prayers for preservation, procured for him a proper posture and prevailing victories based upon promises from above. Can you say that five times really fast? <laughs> Probably not. So I'm going to give you three main points for this morning. Right? First, we will observe Jacob's plans. Then we're going to find that Jacob prays. And finally, we will see that Jacob perseveres as he holds on to the Lord for dear life. So this morning, we're going to look at plans, prayers, and perseverance. And in a couple more weeks, I'm going to be up here again, and we will take a look at the posture of Jacob and how it changes as he wrestles with God. For there are several important lessons that we can learn from Jacob's transformation in this, in this text in Genesis 32. So as we begin our walk through the text this morning, we are first confronted with Jacob's plans in verses 22 and 23. Now, many older commentaries that I have read stick these two verses in with the previous, uh, previous passage, um, but... We are looking, many of us are looking at the modern ESV translation uh, this morning. And so I think it'd be wise to address and tackle these verses together. The same night he arose, Jacob arose, and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. 
Jacob had once again found himself in a pickle, right? He, he had just had this extremely stressful ordeal with his uncle Laban, and he's heading back home to southern Canaan in a very slow-moving caravan with his family. Um, on the, and this, this return trip home was extremely stressful for Jacob. Right at the forefront of his mind was surely the dread of the in, in, inevitable encounter with his brother Esau. Right? Because just 20 years prior, Jacob had swindled their father's right blessing away from Esau. Right? Jacob had stolen Esau's money. He had stolen his inheritance. He had stolen his blessing. And Esau had pledged to kill his brother if he ever saw him again. And so as Jacob gets home, gets close to home, he hears that Esau hears of his return. And so Esau has come out to greet him with an army of 400 men. Jacob is absolutely terrified as we get into our uh, passage this morning. He is absolutely terrified. So once again, he's left to scheme up a plan so he can regain his brother's trust as he returns home. Right? Jacob sends gift after gift after gift in, in waves to Esau in chapter 32, hoping to, to appease his brother's heart. Right? Because the million-dollar question is, right, will Esau come in peace to reconcile, or will Esau wage war and get his revenge? It's a life-or-death business to steal someone's blessing. And so what will it be for Jacob? Reconciliation or revenge? That is the question looming over his head and over his heart, right? Jacob is between a rock and a hard place, right? Behind him is Laban, and, and he can't go back to that life. And before him is Esau and these 400 men. And God told Jacob to return to your country and your kindred that I might do you good. Jacob is following God's commands to return home, right? But he still finds himself in a pickle. Right? There's, there's no other options um, but to do his absolute best and to surrender his fears before the Lord and take a step forward. So that's exactly what he does. Right on the night before he met Esau and, and his giant army, Jacob sends his wives and his children and his animals and livestock across the river because solitude on an occasion, on this occasion, is more suitable for prayer. Calvin writes about this, and he says that there is no doubt that fearing the extremity of his peril, he was completely carried away with the ardor of supplication to God. So I want to ask you this morning, what has the Lord called you to do? Even though you may know that you are right where God wants you, and, and you're, you're trying your best to follow God's will for your life, and this season of life... Um, has it been smooth sailing for you? Even in my own personal experience, I'm, I'm willing to bet that following God's will has its moments of pure terror for you, too. How many times have you recited Jeremiah 29, 11? I think that may be printed on, on Evan's, uh, Evan's new Bible, or journal. Um, right? And how many times have you recited that verse over and over to yourself, but you are still terrified, right, by this impending doom? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Right? For some reason, that's, uh, you know, as, as a youth pastor, that's, you ask a kid their favorite verse. That is often a, a favorite verse of high school students. 
right, who have yet to face the real world of problems. It's going to be, oh, man, these great plans that God's got for me. And um, then somewhere along our journey into adulthood, we realize that our future is full of rocks. And it's full of hard places and pickles, right? But the, the glory of that is that's where Jeremiah twenty nine twelve comes into play. Can you recite that verse from memory? The next one. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. Huh. Why was God's promise of glorious hope for his people followed with a reminder to prayer? I find that really interesting. And that brings us to our second, uh, second step in Jacob's transformation in our passage this morning. Jacob's prayer. Early in this chapter, in chapter 32, we have a record of Jacob's earnest plea to God to save him from the hand of Esau. Right, Verses 9 through 12 are actually the longest prayer that we find in the whole book of Genesis. And it provides the reader an excellent model of prayer for when we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. It's an awesome prayer. But verses 9 through 12 aren't in our passage this afternoon. Instead of this beautifully crafted, articulated prayer, we're handed the first few words of verse 24. Look at that with me. And Jacob was left alone. Imagine it's pitch black outside, right? Jacob is, is sitting at the base of a tree along the bank of a stream in total darkness. Maybe a short time he could, he could see the torches in the distance as his family crossed the water, right? Jacob has sent everything he loved across the stream. Rachel would have been there. And it was this woman that he had absolutely adored. And then there was Leah, his first wife, his children, his servants, his animals. Everything he had, he had sent away. Everything but himself. Verse 24 tells us that Jacob was alone in the darkness. Now, how do we know that Jacob was praying when the text doesn't explicitly say this? That's a big claim to make. Again, I'm going to bring up commentator Matthew Henry, and he says this. Jacob had helped his wives and his children across the river as he desired to be in private and was left alone so that he might more fully spread his cares and fears before the Lord. Calvin also talks about this little sentence hidden among our story this morning. Calvin notes that Jacob prayed to the Lord in in verses 9 and 10, 9 through 12 earlier, and he arranges his plans to appease his brother, and now he takes confidence and prepares himself to meet the dread head on. He remains alone, having sent forward his wives and children, Not that he might escape himself if he heard of their destruction, but because solitude was more suitable for prayer. And there is no doubt, fearing the extremity of his peril, that he was completely carried away with the ardor of a supplication to God. Those last few words are are super flowery in today's English, but I think they adequately capture the moment. Jacob was at the end of his rope. Right? He was simultaneously running from danger, yet he was t- going directly towards impending doom. The poor guy just needed some alone time to take everything in and lay it before the Lord in prayer. You ever found yourself there? You've tried your hardest. You've done all the right things. You've planned, you've prayed, and you've acted, right? And now you just need to close the bedroom door and collapse on your knees And pour out your heart, your frustrations, your fears, and your worries to the Lord. For you know that there's nothing within your power to change 
what lies ahead. You simply have nothing left to do but to plead for preservation. Friends, our Father in heaven hears your cries. Let them ring. Do not accept defeat. Calvin says we must overcome anxiety in intricate affairs, lest we should be hindered by our duty. Right? Don't worry. You are perfectly normal. You are perfectly human. Right? Being at the end of a rope uh, is part of the human experience. Being utterly exhausted is human. But we as followers of Christ have a hope. We have a Father in heaven who promises to meet us there when we're on our knees. When the Lord is speaking to his people in Babylon, uh, Babylonian captivity, he speaks through the prophet Jeremiah. I want to read a little bit more, give you a little more context uh, with Jeremiah 29, 11. He says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. There's verse 13. You will seek me. You will find me. You will seek me with all your heart, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather for you all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. That's God's promise to the Israelites. That's God's promise to his people. Right? He hears our pleas and he promises a restoration. He did that with Jacob. Right? He did so with the Israelites in Babylonian captivity. And he has done that for us today in his son, Jesus Christ. The story of Jacob's change and posture helps us understand our own role in all of this. Right? Jacob, he makes plans. Jacob prays. And next, we're going to observe that Jacob perseveres. Verse 24 continues. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. This is weird. (laughs) This is wild, right? There is absolutely no introduction to him. This mysterious man who came out of nowhere to battle Jacob while he was left alone. He just wanted some alone time, right? And uh, one of Rembrandt's famous paintings depicts this scene. You might have that picture in your head, the scene of Jacob wrestling with an angel of the Lord. And I would like to note that scholars have debated the origin of this mysterious man. Some say it was an angel of the Lord, while some say it was uh, the manifestation of God himself, the pre-incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, who has pursued and is now wrestling with Jacob in the flesh. Either way, this, this scene provides a picture that cannot be missed. Jacob has been wrestling with God his entire life. And we get to read about that in Genesis. God versus Jacob in battle after battle, right? Prayers, pleas, pleading, schemes, stolen blessings, and all, right? All of Jacob's life has been God versus Jacob in this ongoing battle. And this ongoing battle culminates here in, in verse 24. And it's, it's abundantly clear when you read on in verses 28 and verses 30. And uh, later on in, in Hosea chapter 12, we find that it talks about this, uh, this story a little bit as well. But we find out that Jacob is wrestling God. Jacob is wrestling God. Let's read on in verse 25. 
When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. At first glance, when we look at this story, we think, okay, Jacob's wrestling God. So, so was, God, was God losing in a wrestling match to Jacob, to a man, right? This was, this was certainly not the case. This scene is much like one that's played out on living rooms across the world, right? Fathers wrestling on their ground with their children, letting them get a few good moves in, right? Make them feel good about themselves. But God the Father was completely in control of this wrestling match. How do we know that? Right? We see that in the midst of this struggle. God does something. God does something. He, he, he reaches out. He touches and dislocates the hip socket of Jacob in verse 25. This joint is one of the strongest parts of the human body. And, and, and a mere touch, a mere touch dislocates Jacob's hip. God breaks Jacob at his strongest point. And he does this when Jacob is stuck in a pickle, trying his hardest to avoid a fight, and he's forced to wrestle with God and uh, the God of this universe. And it's then, and it's only then, that his strongest point has been broken. What would that place be for you? What's your strong point? What's that thing that gives you an advantage over others in this life? What, what would that place be for you? That's exactly where Jacob was injured. He's wounded in his strength because God is pursuing his heart. Have you ever, been, uh, have you ever had your life put out of joint by God? Have you ever had your plans or, or your dreams dislocated? Perhaps the way to your heart is, is by the dislocation of something that makes you strong. At least that's what's going on uh, with God, and that's what God is doing to Jacob in our story this morning. And after God dislocates Jacob's strength, what was this broken man's response? This is good. Verse 26. Then the man said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob is, is, is tired. He's ex- absolutely exhausted, and he's weary. And for the first time, he's actually broken. Jacob has been completely stripped of his ability to fight for victory. He can no longer manipulate the battle, the battle between him and God, the battle between him and Esau, the battle of, of life. He can no longer do these things. He's been given this one final blow that has prevented him to be able to win under his own strength. And so how does Jacob respond? He simply perseveres. He becomes this clinging child. Right? I, have this, I have this vision of a child sitting on the leg of a father, right, holding on for absolute dear life, but the father just continues to walk forward with ease, one step at a time. What has God dislocated in your life? Has he carried you forward through the impossible? These are things to be thought of and things to be remembered. And it's here that Jacob's posture completely changes. Right? It's, it's well documented that an addict cannot begin the road to recovery before they have been completely broken. In Colorado, I had a wonderful intern. His name was Stephen. 
And Stephen had just graduated from Baylor University. He, he was an honor student. Uh, he was an athlete. And he wanted to have a fun few years in the mountains right before he started a career. And he had, he had worked so hard through school, through high school, through college, just to do everything right, made the right decisions, uh, and he just needed a breather, right? So he moved, to, he moved to Breckenridge and began to work with me and our high school students in our program. And after settling into this new adult life, right far from the grasp of the, of the grandparents who raised him, he began to see that there were options, right? There were opportunities in the real world that were not present in his comfortable little Christian bubble that he had been raised in. You see, his, his mother and father were both addicts. His mom died from an overdose when he was in middle school. Right? And his father was in and out of prison his entire adult life. Still is. Stephen had been sheltered from this reality, uh, starting at the age of just being a young kid by his loving grandparents who took him in. Right? But he, he began to experience in Colorado this newfound freedom. He began using some powerful narcotics that, that just started this downward trend, right? He, he wrecked his brand new graduation present, this brand new fancy car. He lost his job. He couldn't pay rent. He spent nights with random strangers that he had just met around town. And after about a year of running away from these responsibilities, his grandparents and I started a conversation and we were both afraid. We were terrified that he was going to end up like his parents. He was either going to die or be in prison. So we gathered our resources together and we staged an intervention for Stephen. We had prayed about this for, for weeks and weeks and, and planned out this meeting, right? And where, where he, we, were, we hoped that he would own up to his mistakes and repent of his sin. Right? It was this emotional few hours sitting in this really hot condo with no apps, no air conditioning. Um, but there were a few glimmers of hope in this meeting with Stephen. But ultimately, he wasn't ready. Right? He hadn't hit rock bottom yet. He still had options. And he wanted to explore those options. I think about him all the time. I loosely follow his wild escapades on Facebook and, and social media, and I, I find myself praying for him and for his return. Stephen has decided to cling on to adrenaline. Right? He finds that in women. He finds it in drugs and alcohol and wild, crazy adventures. And he, he clings on to these things in hope of finding an escape from the impending doom. He knows it's coming. Unlike my old intern, Stephen, Jacob persevered. He persevered through his adversity, and he remained faithful to the Lord and found a way forward by clinging on to the Lord with all of his might. What are you clinging on to? In conclusion, I'd like to offer you a, a few thoughts of application from Jacob's tussle, right? First, when, when, when danger approaches, we should immediately resort directly to the Lord, right? We need to put the distractions out of the way and find a quiet place and just plead to the Lord, just like Jacob. The book of Psalms shows us that we can bring our thoughts, our fears, we can bring our frustrations, we can bring our anxieties and our joys to the feet of God. And second, we should do whatever we can to keep moving forward. By showing up here on Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon, you are availing yourselves to God's common means of grace. 
God uses preaching. He uses the word read, uh, prayer, and sacraments to encourage his saints all the more as we see the day approaching. Perhaps you don't uh, know this yet, but there's a community of believers here who absolutely love you and want to care for you. Trust me, friends, we are, we are all just like Humpty Dumpty. We are all broken, and we need help being put back together again. So reach out to someone. Continue. Don't continue fighting alone. Third, Calvin says, Calvin said it, it must be true. Um, <laughs> Calvin says that we should proceed with intrepidity whithersoever the Lord commands. It's a really wild way of saying that we, as followers of Christ, can and we should cling to our Father's legs as he takes that next step for us when we have absolutely no more strength to give, right? And in doing that act of clinging on, we can remain fearless because we know that God is in control. That's not as easy as it sounds. It's a really easy thing to say. It's, it's a completely another thing to actually do. But, but we are promised that there is hope, that there is rest for those who call upon the name of the Lord. We can run and not grow weary. We can walk and not be faint. So friends, let us hold on for dear life as this world brings with itself a lot of difficulty. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity and for your means of grace in our lives this morning. We pray for those who were unable to join us And we just ask that this day be your day. And let us rejoice and be glad in it. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.